Thank you, Pastor Wayne. I'm going to go in a slightly different direction in this sermon than I did in the first. This is less about uh, coping with the coronavirus and more about how to use our opportunities before us for the gospel. The Pew Research Center says that the number of Christians in the U.S. is declining while the number of American adults who do not identify with any organized religion is growing. Add to this the fact that America is becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. Look, it alerts us to the fact that the American, North American mission uh, field is changing. I think you know this. Our task, both here and abroad, is further complicated by many who call themselves Christians yet who do not understand salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, and in some ways have been inoculated against the gospel by their religious systems. The Pew Research Center says that the average age of this group is becoming progressively older. On the other end of the spectrum is the growing number of people who have no religious background, and they are deeply skeptical toward anyone who is, the research center says that the average age of this group is becoming progressively younger. So you can see that we are having more and more in our society of people who have a religious heritage, yet who may not be understanding salvation by grace through faith. And we have on the other end of the spectrum a, a, a younger generation and growing in number of those who have no religious background and have no biblical context whatsoever. As a result, across this nation and across other Western nations, we are seeing relatively few genuine baptized converts added to our Bible-believing churches. That ought to concern us. And indeed, that places a huge burden on the modern church to effectively fulfill its God-given responsibility of going into the world and making disciples. That leaves you and me with an enormous challenge. How do we reach this generation for Christ? Now, here's the problem I'm facing. I don't know about you, but I am a confirmed introvert. My natural tendency is to avoid engaging with people. I am most comfortable spending time in my own company and in fact, I often find social interaction both draining and exhausting. If left alone to my own devices, I would find it much easier to become a recluse. No doubt you are surprised to hear that from one of your missionaries today, but I'm ashamed to say it is true. Just ask anybody on my ministry team in South Africa, they will confirm this. Now, don't get me wrong. Ever since I gave my life to Christ, I've obediently resisted my natural reclusive tendencies in order to engage people for the sake of the gospel. Now, for me, this is a daily struggle. I love the gospel, and I love people, well, most of the time. Shortly after I became a Christian, when I was just 15 years old in the country of Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, I complained to the missionary who led me to Christ that my shyness is likely to hinder me from serving God. And he responded with this shocking rebuke, and I'll never forget it. 
He said, using your shyness as an excuse not to serve God is sin. Ouch. I was shocked to hear that, as I suspect you are here today. But he was right, of course. God convicted me that day of my sinful reluctance, and ever since I have obediently stepped out of my comfort zone each day to become an instrument useful in God's hand. I will, I will confess that it's a daily challenge, and that some days are better than others. In fact, I have to often manage my interaction with people in order to maintain my mental health, but I can honestly testify that in spite of myself, God has supernaturally enabled me to serve Him by serving others my entire Christian life. And Julie and I, ever since we have served God together, have done the same our entire married life. To God be the glory. Well, I want to point you to a passage that has really helped me in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, we'll get there in just a moment, but Paul makes a connection between two subjects which are crucial to our fulfillment of the Great Commission. He highlights the relationship between prayer and witnessing, the relationship between prayer and witnessing. I can safely say that these two subjects have likely caused more guilt in my life, and probably also in yours, more than any other. If you currently feel like a failure in your prayer life, and if you feel like a failure in your personal witness for Christ, welcome to the club. And in case you think missionaries are immune from such feelings of failure, you would be mistaken. So no doubt you'll be encouraged to learn today that I do not pray nearly enough, and I do not witness enough, and I, don't know, and I do not wear that as a badge of pride. But let me put your minds at ease right up front. My aim today is not to add to your feelings of guilt about your personal struggle in these two areas of your Christian life. We can all agree that guilt is a lousy motivator, right? Instead, my goal is to offer some practical help from our text on how we might all take the next step towards being more effective as witnesses for the gospel. At the very least, in this passage, Paul calls on you and me to pray more faithfully and to bear witness more effectively. So Colossians chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, the connection that I find between these two seemingly different areas of prayer and witnessing is based on this premise. A private life of prayer is the foundation for a public life of witness. A private life of prayer is the foundation for a public life of witness. In private, you are to devote yourself to prayer. In public, you are to be a godly witness for Jesus Christ. In private, you are to be persistent in watchful, thankful prayer. In public, you are to be wise in your conduct and winsome in your words so that you might be an effective witness for Christ. So let's take a closer look 
together at what Paul is teaching here, and there are two basic uh, points. The first one is in private, devote yourself to prayer, verses 2, 3, and 4. Paul, first of all, instructs us how to pray, and then he suggests what we are to pray for. Well, first of all, how are we to pray? He says in verse 2, first of all, we are to pray persistently. Paul instructs us to continue steadfastly in prayer, or literally devote yourselves to prayer. And it is the same phrase that often used in connection with prayer throughout the New Testament. For example, Acts chapter 1 and verse 14 says of the early disciples uh, before Pentecost happened, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Later in Acts 6, rather than getting diverted by waiting on tables or by being distracted by the details of local church ministry, the apostles declared in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul gives us the briefest of commands when he says, and you know this, pray without ceasing. Now, you know that praying without ceasing does not mean praying nonstop every minute of the day, which of course would be impossible. Instead, it means coming back to prayer again and again. It has the idea of a nagging cough, which a person does persistently over and over again. And with regard to prayer for family or friends who don't know the Lord, you might ask, is there any point in which we should stop praying? Well, probably not until that person is dead, or at least until you are dead. Uh, You shouldn't stop. I think you get the point. This is how I prayed for my lost father for over 30 years. He finally yielded to Christ four weeks before he died, just in the nick of time. But in all honesty, I was uh, growing doubtful that uh, he would turn to Christ, even though he had been witnessed to many times. Dad was ultimately led to the Lord in the nick of time by Pastor Tiny Cooper, a man that I had the privilege of leading to Christ many years ago and discipled him and trained him for ministry. In fact, he is the pastor now, South African pastor of the very first church we started in Cape Town. (coughs) Excuse me. God works in amazing ways to accomplish His purposes. But I hope that will be an encouragement to you to continually agonizing in prayer for lost family members or friends. Part of our responsibility to be all in for the gospel requires us to pray persistently, according to Paul here in this passage. But he also says that we are to pray watchfully. Verse 2 also, he says, being watchful in it. It may also be translated staying alert. It's often used when our adversary, the devil, is mentioned. Peter says the same thing in his first letter after urging us to cast all our anxieties and cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, he exhorts us to be sober-minded, be watchful, or stay alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then in the garden... Just before his arrest, Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 26, watch and pray, literally keep watching and keep praying, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer is how we stay on the alert against the unseen enemy. 
There is a companion passage in Ephesians chapter 6 where we uh, learn that we are not to wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And then, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We pray persistently, we pray watchfully, and then Paul also says in verse 2 of Colossians 4, we are to pray thankfully. To pray thankfully with thanksgiving is to pray in faith, especially when the circumstances might not be in your favor. Whatever the overwhelming trial, it takes faith to pray a prayer like this. Are you ready? Lord, thank you for this trial. Because I know that it is not too difficult for you. I know that you are for me, and you intend to work it together for my good. You will use this to strengthen my faith, so I ask you to answer for your glory and for your namesake in your time. Your heavenly Father will grant you superabundant grace as you pray thankfully in your present, even challenging circumstances with an outreaching spirit, with a desire to see many come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through this global crisis. Paul instructs us to pray persistently, watchfully, and thankfully. But then what are we to pray for? Verses 3 and 4, Paul instructs us to pray for the influence of the gospel to expand. Paul prays this, uh, ask the church to pray this for himself. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He isn't asking to be released from prison. He is simply asking for God's will to be done in opening more opportunities to declare the mystery of Christ. I hadn't realized what a great application that is to our present circumstances. Many of you feel trapped, as in a prison, in your present circumstance. Paul is not asking to be released from his prison. He's asking that the opportunities for the gospel would be more open and accessible to him, even in that circumstance. Nowhere in the Bible are we ever told to press the intercom button to ask the butler to bring more refreshments. And yet, if we're honest, that's all too often how we pray for ourselves. It's notable that Paul is not asking for relief, but he is asking for us to get on the walkie-talkie with God and to call in more provisions for the troops on the front battle lines. I know you are praying for your pastor's the pastoral team here, and you ought to be. I know you are praying for your missionaries around the world, and we're so grateful. None of us have experienced this before. None of us really knows how to deal with this. So we're asking God's people to pray for those on the front lines to be used effectively for His glory. You see, this really isn't about Paul. It's not about his friends and their comfort. It's about glorifying God by getting the gospel out to the lost, regardless of the cost. It's about being all in for, the, uh, for Christ. It's about declaring the mystery of Christ. 
That's what our God-given purpose is. It's enshrined in the Great Commission to take the gospel to every creature. It's not just a function of the church. Listen to me now. It's clearly a responsibility of every Christian. God has scattered the church presently. He wants to use you and to use me in this present circumstance for His glory. Well, Paul encourages you to pray persistently, watchfully, and thankfully for each other, for your missionaries, for the Christian workers in your community, also for yourselves, for open doors to the gospel, and for clarity in presenting the gospel. I suppose Paul is really fleshing out for us in the context of this passage that private prayer is the foundation for our public witness. To put it another way, you are to talk to God about people before you talk to people about God. Talk to God for sure, but then do not neglect your opportunity of talking to people about God. They need to hear from you now. In private, devote yourself to prayer. This passage also tells us that in public, we are to be a godly witness for Jesus Christ, verses 5 and 6. There are two obvious parts to this also. First of all, your walk and your words. A godly walk is the basis for effective witness, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, the idea of walking is a favorite metaphor of Paul. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he prayed, and, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to, here it is, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In Colossians chapter 2, and verse 6, he commanded, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. To walk in wisdom toward outsiders means to base your daily life on the wisdom that comes from the Word of God. It requires living in line with God's Word so that those who are not Christians will see the beauty of Christ in your life and relationships that gives you a platform to tell them the good news that changed your life. A godly walk is indeed the foundation for effective witness and And be sure that the world around you is watching everything that you are doing right now, how you are responding as a Christian to this circumstance. But also, part of your godly walk includes redeeming the time, which simply means making most of the opportunity. When God opens the door, walk through it. The Greek word means to buy up or grab the opportunity. There is rarely a day that goes by in my life that I don't early in the morning ask the Lord, open ministry before me today. Open it. And when I pray that kind of a prayer, it puts me in a predicament, particularly with my malady of being an introvert, that when he opens the door, I have a responsibility to walk through it. I have to to seize the opportunity. I have to grab it for his glory. In John 4, there is a contrast between Jesus and his disciples with regard to how Jesus was handling the woman at the well in Samaria. You see, Jesus saw her as a lost soul who needed the living water that he alone could give. Uh, We see in John chapter 4 and verse 35 that Jesus has a harvest mentality here. He sees the fields as as white unto harvest. He, He understands what he is there for. 
But on the other hand, in this account, we see the disciples responding in a different way, and and we can identify with this. They were focused on getting Jesus to eat his lunch so that he could get on with his journey. We see that in verses 31 and 33. But Jesus rebuked them that day by his example, by making much of the opportunity in a very difficult circumstance. He made the most of an opportunity that the disciples missed. Oh, how easy it is for us to miss the opportunities that God opens up before us. The the foundation for buying up opportunities for witness is prayer for God to open doors for the Word. Pray for God to give you gospel opportunities with people you have frequent, frequent contact with. The second He opens the door, you're ready to walk through it. A godly walk is the basis for effective witness. In a hotel in this last week uh, in New York, um, uh, we were in a hotel and everybody is feeling quite vulnerable. I stepped into an elevator and an elderly gentleman stepped in and, and asked permission to step in with me because of the social distancing. So as we were quietly heading up towards the, the floor, I said, this is a pretty scary time, isn't it? He goes, yes, it is. He said, well, maybe it's time for us older folks, maybe, maybe, maybe it's time for the dead wood to be taken out and for, uh, uh, for the younger generation to shine. I said, no, I don't, I don't think it's that. I think God has a purpose in this, and, and uh, he needs you to look to him. And that was the only conversation we had. But the final thing Paul deals with here is probably the most beautiful of all of the ideas he gives us in this passage, and it's found in verse 6. If you miss anything else that I've said this, this afternoon, don't miss this. You see, grace words are the means for effective witness. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now here Paul is telling us, be gracious, be seasoned, or be interesting, and be sensitive. Well, let's take a look at the gracious part first. Our presentation of the gospel should be permeated with God's grace, which is the message about salvation being a free gift to sinners who deserve His judgment. And since we live in an age where most people think that salvation comes by works, we need to get pretty specific on what the grace of God is. I shared with you in the Sunday school hour of of how our society is very religious in South Africa, and I think the same has happened to your own society here in North America where through generations of denominational Christianity, even Baptist Christianity, um, many people have in some ways been inoculated against the gospel if they haven't confronted it personally. And we could be in danger of, uh, uh, of fueling or contributing to a generation of people who think that salvation is by works. Go to church, get baptized, give your, your tithes and your offerings, contribute to missions, whatever the case may be. And and that uh, completely is apart from what the true gospel is. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by any works lest any man should boast. But the part about letting your speech always be with grace includes speaking graciously to others or literally speaking what I like to call grace words. 
In this fast-paced world, you'll not often be given enough time to share a full confrontational presentation of the gospel or take somebody through the Romans road. That is a very rare occurrence and only comes when trust has been built in somebody's life. Certainly that's true in a religious society where we live in South Africa and also in a post-modern, post-Christian society where people are not really uh, tuned in and don't want to hear anything religious. But don't miss the, uh, the chance to frequently and briefly share a word of grace with those you encounter each day. We are, in order to, during the time we are earning trust in the lives of people that we are walking alongside of, uh, discipling them towards Christ, often we'll only have frequent opportunities for words of grace to be sown into their minds So what are grace words? Grace words are brief, juicy tidbits of the gospel, snapshots of God's love as shown through Jesus to whet the appetite of the sinner. Grace words should include quotes from God's word planted into the mind of a sinner, which enables the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to his heart. If salvation is of God, and we believe that, right? then we've got to believe that it's the Holy Spirit using His Word, the gospel truth, sown into the hearts of men and women and boys and girls, that that is what He plans to use to draw men and women and boys and girls to Himself. We need to be purveyors of grace words when we do not have the opportunity for a confrontational presentation of the full gospel. You are to be kind and humble letting the other person know that you too are a sinner who would be on your way to hell were it not for God's grace. Apologetics have their place, but I'm not in favor of getting into arguments with lost people. It's never worked for me in the past. I doubt that it works for you either. And that's clearly not the idea that Paul is communicating here. See, he's showing the idea that Sharing the gospel is like one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. Be gracious. But he also teaches us here that we ought to be interesting. When Paul says to let your speech be seasoned with salt, he doesn't mean for you to use salty language as used by people at work or sailors. Of course not. You see, salt had two main uses in Paul's day, it was used as a preservative from spoilage, which implies that your speech should be pure and free from corruption. It ought to show those whose lives are spoiled because of sin how they can be restored through the gospel. It's to be refreshing. But also salt was used as a spice to make food tastier. Our presentation of the gospel should be spicy, stimulating people's taste to want more. You might want to memorize and recite key gospel uh, verses, starting with John 3.16 and add some verses from Romans and so on to help you explain who God is and what man's sinful condition looks like and what Jesus did for us on the cross and what response God is looking for from the sinner. You might also prepare some helpful illustrations, preferably from your own experience, to explain the gospel. I often when I'm sharing the gospel, particularly with somebody who, I, who has had a religious background, I share with them my misunderstanding of uh, the, the truth about Jesus. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. I knew that as a kid growing up. 
But until I confronted the reality that actually Jesus did die for the sins of the whole world, but he died specifically for Dave Rudolph. He died for me. And I needed to personally respond to that gracious gift. That changed my life. Give your own personal testimony briefly. That'll make it more interesting and believable. Be gracious, be interesting. And then Paul says here, be sensitive. This is the tough one, ladies and gentlemen. We can't gloss over this. And how often I've read over this in times past without really understanding the impact of what Paul is saying here. He says, you must know how you should respond to each person. Wow. I must know how I should respond to each person. He puts the responsibility on me to qualify my prospect, to understand my audience, to know what is going on in my culture and the distinction, distinctiveness in my culture. And I can't possibly qualify my prospect if I haven't been walking down the road with that individual for some time to know their background, to understand their personal dilemma. And also we ought to be listening to their anxieties, to their fears, so that we will know how to apply specific Scripture to their particular understanding. This is why you must be careful about using memorized presentations of the gospel. Now, I'm not opposed to them. They have their place. But you need to tailor the message to fit the context of the person you are engaging with. People hear and perceive things differently. We know this. One person may need to have a fuller understanding of sin and judgment, but the next person may need to hear about God's abundant grace for sinners who repent. I would encourage you to embark on a study of of Jesus' witnessing encounters in the gospel. He never used the same approach twice. He, He dealt with each person individually. He confronted the proud Pharisees in a certain manner, but was gentle with those who who knew they were guilty, but he still every occasion dealt with their sin. Pray for wisdom as you speak the gospel to others so that you will know how to respond to every person's unique needs. Well, clearly, it's God's intent that every Christian be engaged in gospel ministry in some way. That is what the Great Commission commands us to do. But what does that mean for you, and what should you do next? Well, you ought to start with prayer. I think that teaching comes clearly out of our text today. God wants you to prevail in prayer with Him concerning His plan of salvation for all people, both near and far away. Do you have a list? Are you praying for your acquaintances, not necessarily your friends. You know, you're praying for your family, praying for your friends, of course. But what about those acquaintances, people that you brush shoulders with, well, you will, again, uh, on a regular basis? Bring them into your prayer closet and plead with their souls before Christ. According to our text, You are to to devote yourself to private prayer, praying persistently, watchfully, and thankfully. You are to pray for the gospel workers, for open doors for the gospel, and for clarity in presenting the gospel. In public, your godly walk is the basis for your own effective witness. It is the proving ground for anybody wanting to be all in for the gospel. Now, I know 30 years ago, the idea of relational evangelism got a bad rap. Because some use it as an excuse. Oh, I just need to live for Christ in the community. I don't need to say anything to anyone. That's not at all the intention of the Great Commission. 
We've got to grapple with the souls of men and women. And it involves how we pray. It involves how we walk. But ultimately, we have to say something. We have to communicate the truth of the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit uses in the hearts to bring conviction of spiritual need. Your godly walk is the basis for your witness, but grace words are the means for an effective witness. Well, perhaps God's Spirit is prompting you today to do just a little bit more than you have done before. Are you willing to commit a little bit more of your time, certainly in prayer? Are you willing to commit a little bit more of your talents? Are you willing to commit a little bit more of your treasure to the ministry of reaching your community for Christ? Are you all in for the gospel? Don't miss the opportunities God gives you each day to keep building on the redemptive relationships you have with acquaintances who are lost in their sins. Now is the time to follow up with them. Call them. How are you doing? How are you feeling? What are your concerns? What are your fears through all of this? How can I be of some help? Take some time to listen to their fears and their struggles. It will enable you to counsel them from God's Word, which with truths that focus particularly on their spiritual need. That's precisely what grace words are. Proverbs 25, verses 11 and 12 say, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. God wants to use you for this. Modern, spiritually destitute Americans fall into those two primary categories. Now there are shades in between. Those who have been inoculated against the gospel by their religion and those who are postmodern in their thinking and know nothing about Jesus. And he has put us here in this world, in this society, in this generation to get the gospel to them. In both categories, you're dealing with a generation of souls who recoil from propositional truth, and they unashamedly reject biblical authority. And if you're to be obedient to the gospel, or to the Great Commission, you will need to develop more careful relational methods of evangelism. I'm afraid that's the new world. You say, well, that's tough, that's hard, that's slow. I'm not going to see much evidence as quickly as I would like. No. But remember, Paul says, some sow the seed, others water, but it's God who gives the increase. I'm sure we're all going to stand before the throne of God in our glorified bodies one day and have someone sidle up to us and say, you don't know this, but... God used you to sow a seed in my, in my heart. And so-and-so reaped that harvest later. That's okay, isn't it? I get frustrated as a missionary when pastors say, tell us how many souls you led to Christ and how many baptisms you had. As good as that sounds and important uh, uh, information that may be, I don't focus on any of that. I just sow grace words disciple people towards Christ. Once they get saved, I disciple them in Christ. That's how I live. See, modern people don't trust easily, 
So you have no choice but to invest time and energy in building trust through redemptive relationships with the expectation that God's Spirit is going to use His Word to bring conviction of sin and the need of a Savior. That's pretty much what Paul has just taught us in Colossians chapter 4. In private, you are to devote yourself to prayer. In public, you are to be a godly witness for Christ. In private, you are to be persistent in watchful, thankful prayer. In public, you are to be wise in your conduct and winsome in your words so that you might be an effective witness for Christ. Now, Christians, you know what to do here. But perhaps you're watching this and you say, look, I don't have peace in my life. I don't have the confidence of knowing that I'm going to be in heaven one day. I probably fall into that one category where I'm religious and I've been faithful in my religion and I've been, I'm hoping my good works are going to outweigh my bad and I'm going to be in heaven one day. My friend, the Bible makes it clear that all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags before a holy God. Your only hope is in Jesus Christ on his shed blood on the cross in full payment of your sins, his bodily resurrection from the grave, defeating death and giving eternal life to anybody who by faith would admit their sin, recognize that Jesus is the only way to God, the only mediator between man and God, and calling on him to save you. The Bible makes it clear that if you will acknowledge your sinfulness before him, if you will repent of that, and ask Jesus to save you and give you eternal life, you will receive the free gift of eternal life not based upon anything you have done. So our prayer for you is that you will listen to the Spirit of God who is bringing conviction to your heart and you would simply bow your head and pray, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Forgive me for my sins. I believe you're the only way to God, and I trust you. I, I receive salvation through you today. My friend, if you would do that, would you let one of the pastors know at Faith Baptist Church that you've made that decision? They'll happily reach out to you so that you will find hope in the midst of what seems like a hopeless situation in our world, and God will be glorified in you. Let's pray together, shall we? Our gracious Father, we bow and we think of that dear one who has heard your message today and is recognizing their need, spiritual need in their lives. I pray, Father, that you would bring conviction to their hearts and that they would understand how much you love them and how much you desire that they would turn from their works and put their faith completely in the work of Jesus Christ, which was accomplished on the cross in their place. You can do this, Father. We know that. And I pray that the sinner would reach out to the Savior today. And then for your children, Father, who are trapped in their, their homes, it would appear, for some time, help them to get the perspective, your perspective on what this is, and to trust you, to be praying about opportunities, to reach out uh, electronically and uh, in, in some way to the people of need around them, to Christians who have need, to uh, acquaintances who seem to have no hope. We know that, Father, through all of this, you will be glorified. And so we do pray that your will be done. We pray, pray for Pastor Wayne and his team as they stand ready 
to minister to the flock from a distance. We ask you, Father, to give them wisdom to know how to be as effective as they possibly can with this. And then for the missionaries around the world who are attempting to minister in their own communities under similarly difficult circumstances, we ask, Father, that you would work for your glory so that we might all say in unison, to God be the glory, great things he has done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May the Lord bless you.